Grab a seat, guys. Welcome uh, to the last Veritas of the semester. Show up here to next week. Great. Holiday season is here. Uh, great to see you all. For better, for worse, the holiday season is here. Uh, you know, lots of food coming. Lots of holiday parties coming. Lots of uh, presents coming. Um, and, you know, for the kids in this video that we're about to watch, uh, it's a good thing that that's coming after what happened to them. You see, they were uh, victims of Jimmy Fallon's Halloween candy prank. You guys are familiar with this. He challenges parents to tell their kids that they ate all their Halloween candy and then get it on tape. Let's go ahead and watch. You can laugh. It's okay. Last night, after you guys went to bed, me and Dad ate all your candy. those kids. You want to talk about a hopeless situation. You know, their, their entire existence, a child's entire existence is to get candy. I need candy. I need candy. Can I have candy? I just have to. Can I have some more? And so when it's taken away from them, their world just crumbles. Uh, they, you know, I, I think it hits that, that happened to them. Now, uh, this video, of course, in a lighthearted way, you know, I, I think it hits on something we've all faced and maybe are even facing right now is, is we all face hopeless situations. Uh, finally got on the Instagram a couple months ago. I know it's not called that. I just say that. Uh, but I got on Instagram, and one of the handles I follow is called Humans of New York. Some of you might know this. It's a guy walks around New York, interviews people, hears their story, shares. And I came across this lady's story last week. Um, she said, my mom died of lung cancer on my 16th birthday. And my birthday is actually coming up this Saturday. Now, before she passed away, I was a good student and everything, probably going to get a scholarship for singing, but I stayed in my singing recital and after that. You see, my mom was my biggest fan. Even when she was really sick, she came to my singing recital in a wheelchair with her hair falling out of her head, and she sat on the front row. And I quit singing after she died because there was no one to sing for. Now, she doesn't explicitly say it, but she doesn't need to, that this woman's hoping for a change. Some of you might know uh, Ryan... Uh, the Rally for Ryan movement. You know, Ryan Luce is the daughter of uh, one of the assistant men's basketball coaches, Brad Luce. And, and a few weeks ago, a few months ago, she was diagnosed with a rare form of brain cancer. And she, she recently, I don't know if you know this, had to have another surgery up in New York. Um, things, by all accounts, went about as well as they could. Uh, but for specific, the, the thoughts that her mom posted on Facebook. She said, this morning I'm going to ask for, ask for specific prayers Please pray that Ryan's full body scan comes out clear. No cancer. 
please pray that her swelling goes down. We're grateful she's physically recovering so well, but mentally we need to see some progress. You see, the swelling is really weighing on her. I can't imagine how she's digesting all of this and, and doing so well. You know, Ryan, the entire Luce family, they're hoping and they're praying for a change in the face of a seemingly hopeless situation. You know, lots of people these days are feeling hopeless. Tim Keller just wrote a book called Making Sense of God, and he, he mentioned some, some of the most recent suicide statistics. It rose 24. They are at a 30-year high. So from 1999 to 2014, they rose 24%. And from 2006 to 2014, the rate of increase doubled from the previous years. You know, people need to change. It's clear. You know, People here in Mizzou and other universities, Columbia, they're not immune. We're not immune to this hopelessness. There was a survey that came out in 2014. A thousand college students took it. 61% of these students reported feeling overwhelmed with anxiety last year. And 35% reported they felt so depressed that it was difficult to function. That's almost two out of five students at Mizzou. You need a change. You know, you need a change. Many of you in this room, you need a change because you're facing all sorts of hopeless situations. You know, your schedule is ridiculous. You can't sleep. You don't get any sort of break. Your grades are terrible. You've got to figure out summer plans. You hear about this anxiety and you're like, yes, that's me. There's this overwhelming sense of I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my future and it's paralyzing. Some of you are worried about the future of our country. Some of you are fed up with the, the racism on campus and the oppression of people. You want to change. Some of you are ashamed of yourself, ashamed of your own. It's got some bad news and action. Some of you are facing serious health issues. Some of you just got some bad news. Some of you are reminded just how difficult your family life is, and you're not looking forward to going back home. Some of you, most of you, all of you in some way are lonely. Like Lily mentioned, you know, the holidays are supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year, but for you it's anything but that because it's just another reminder that you're lonely, that you don't have any real friends. Lots of us feel hopeless. We, we want to change. But here's the good news. We're not alone. We're not alone. You see, tonight we're finishing up our sermon series through the book of Mark. We've arrived at the final chapter in chapter 16. And tonight we're going to meet a few women who are facing a hopeless situation of, your own, of their own. You see, these women are headed to a tomb. So we pick it up in chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us at the entrance of the tomb? See, if you were here last week, uh, we heard Dirks talk about Jesus' crucifixion, his death. Now, this was a crushing defeat to his followers, to his disciples. You see, hopelessness is abounding in these verses here. You know, his disciples are nowhere to be found. These are the people who gave up their jobs their notoriety, their reputation for years to follow him. They sold out, so to speak, and he died. And they're defeated. They're crushed. They're broken. They've given up. They're hopeless. Even Peter, if you know his story, he's the confident leader. He's the one who's going to step out onto the water when nobody else will. 
he's always quick to go first. When Jesus told him that he's going to die and all the disciples are going to leave, Peter says, mm-hmm, not me. Very confident. You might know the story. You might know the story. He denied him three times. At Jesus' trial, he's sitting around a campfire. Peter kind of sneaks in to see if he can catch a glimpse. And a little slave girl sees him at the campfire and goes, hey, wait a minute. I know you. You're one of his disciples. It's you. And Peter denies him not once, not twice, but three times. And on the very third time, Jesus happened to be walking by and looked him right in the eye. And it broke him. It broke him. Have you ever been there? You know, you're doing great one moment. You're confident. You're the leader. And the next moment, you, you failed. You're broken. You're defeated. So, after Jesus was crucified, it's just these women. They're here at the tomb. This is it. They're trying so hard to find hope. And you'll notice what, what it said. They've, they've brought these spices. They're, they're going to anoint Jesus' body. This was a sign of respect, a sign of devotion. You know, they, they showed up one last time to kind of pay their respects, but they couldn't even do that. They couldn't even do that because of this stone. Something, something's got to change. In 1867, a guy named Erasmus Jacobs, he was a 15-year-old kid. He was living on his dad's farm. His story goes, he sits down under a tree and kind of sits on something hard, turns around, digs up a little bit, finds a 21-carat diamond. Okay, for perspective here, this is my wife's engagement ring. 0.6 carats. A 21 carat diamond is 35 times the size of that. The diamond behind me, that's 10 carats. That's the, called the Eureka diamond. That's the diamond they found. They had to cut it. They had to make it look good. It's half the size of what it was. It's a big diamond. Four years later, after uh, Erasmus found this diamond, more diamonds were found on the farm of his neighbor, Johannes and Diedrich de Beers. And this is a discovery that led to, maybe you've heard of them, the De Beers Diamond Company. They're the largest diamond company in the world. I'll tell you what, the discovery of that diamond, it changed everything for this family. They operate in 28 countries across the globe. Their company has made about $5 billion to date. It didn't just change uh, the De Beers family. It changed the, the, the people and the fortunes of those in South Africa. Uh, this diamond was found on, on land uh, of the Boers. That's their name, the Boers. And these were people who loved to just, look, keep, keep out of my business. We want to stay by ourselves. But word got to the British, who was the largest empire at the time, and they knew the Boers were sitting on a massive diamond reserve. So what did they do? Well, they went to war so that they could get these diamonds. It changed everything. Now, again, I'm not saying the beers is a perfect company. That's not my point. The point is this just one simple diamond it led to drastic changes for better and for sure for worse. But those changes, they pale in comparison to the change God's about to bring at this tomb. Let's keep reading in verse 4. And looking up, the women, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Duh. And he said to them, do not be alarmed, okay? You, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, but he is risen. He's not here. See, look, check it out for yourself. See the place where they laid him. You see, Jesus was crucified. He was dead. Multiple Roman soldiers, these are death experts of the day, they confirmed it. The neurons in his brain stopped firing. His heart stopped beating. His lungs stopped 
working. If he was on an operating table, the surgeons would have called his time of death long ago. And yet when the women arrived, the stones rolled away. What the heck is going on? You know, the text says the women were alarmed. This word has a, a powerful mixture of shock and awe, but also fear. You know, they're, they're shocked and surprised at seeing something remarkable and expected, but they also just want to run away. They want to get away. But it gets even crazier. There's this young man in a white robe. That's just another way of describing an angel. An angel's there in the tomb, and this is what he says. He says something that changes everything. He has risen. He's not here. He's not here. You know, if this claim is true, let's just stop for a second. If this claim is true, it changes everything. Now, not everybody believes this. Not everybody believes the story. A room this size, I wouldn't be shocked. There's some people who don't believe it either. Um, There's lots to say here, but let me just talk about two reasons why people uh, have not believed the resurrection. The first is that some people believe it's just a story. You know, it's just a myth that this section and maybe even parts of most of Mark wasn't meant to be taken literally. It's just a feel-good story, make us feel good, go about our day. A guy named Ben Stewart, he's a pastor, he makes a great point in one of his sermons. He, he points out that in these first verses of Mark, the ones we're reading, he's doing something extremely significant. You see, up until now, he's, Mark has been presenting this as if he's reporting true, actual, real history. You see, in the ancient world, you had reportage, you had historical reporting, or you had myth. That was it. There was no category of realistic fiction. You know, today people can kind of think of scenarios and include details that make it seem plausible. That didn't exist. It was historical reportage or myth. And myth did not sound anything like what we have in the book of Mark. You know, he keeps repeating these names over and over. If you back up to chapter 15, we read about a guy helping Jesus carry the cross. Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why include that? You know, we got the names of the women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome. Why include that? Well, the people reading this, they know them. They know Mary, they know Salome, they know Cyrus. They can go check it out for themselves. They can verify if the story is true or not. And he's not the only one who does this. Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. It said, Jesus was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, that's the apostle Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That's Cornell Auditorium packed to the brim. Jesus appeared to 500 people. Go check it out for yourself. This is verifiable history. C.S. Lewis, he was a professor at Oxford. He was an expert in ancient literature. The guy read all sorts of stuff. This is what he said. He said, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they're like, and I know none of them are like this. None of them are like the resurrection account in Mark. There's only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or some unknown ancient writer without known predecessor or successor, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. The reader who does not see this has simply not learned how to read. He got a little aggressive there at the end. Forgive him. Uh, You can read. It's fine. But you get it, right? The point is that Mark is not reporting myth. He is reporting history, something that actually happened. 
Second, you know, some people uh, say that Jesus died and he stayed dead and his followers, his disciples, they just couldn't handle it. And so years later, 10, 20 years later, long after, they all got back together and they said, look, here's what we got to do. We got to talk, we got to think, and we got to act like he's still alive. Let's kind of put on a show. Let's get back to the glory days. We had all these followers where the movement was big. We were at the center, at the heart of it. Let's get back to that. Let's just pretend like he's still alive. Lots of things to say about that. We'll just talk about the one main problem. This entire story hinges on the testimony of women. The entire story hinges on the testimony of women. Now, that doesn't shock us, but back then, that would be shocking. And here's why. No offense, ladies. But you were not valued in the first century. Your testimony was not allowed in court because it was thought that women were hysterical and could not be trusted. Uh, If you talked about and you claimed, based some sort of claim on a woman's testimony, you'd get laughed at. Oh, that was from a woman? Well, can't believe that. That's a big hurdle for Christians back then, but today it actually helps us. Do you know why? If you're going to start a movement... If you want to get people on board, why in the world would you include the testimony of women? That's what you do to kill a movement, not to start a movement. Why would Mark include the testimony of women unless the resurrection really happened? If Jesus is not here, then it changes everything. The resurrection means that whoever you are, whatever you're facing, whatever you've done, there's hope. Okay, let's be honest. When you leave this room, when I leave this room tonight, our circumstances are probably going to stay the same. Probably going to stay the same as when we walked in. Your GPA is going to be the same. Your professors are still going to make you take a final and turn in that paper. You're still going to have to make a decision about your major or an internship or a job. You're still going to have that sickness. You're still going to have those roommates. You're still going to have the same number of friends. Everything is going to be the same except for one thing. And that one thing changes everything. Because he is not here means that he's here. He's not here means that he's here. Because Jesus left the tomb, he can come be here with you. He can be here with me. So he's with you when you're facing temptation. He's with you when you are ridiculed. For being a Christian. Jesus is with you when you don't know what major to choose, what internship to take. He's with you when you're depressed. He's with you when you get the bad news. He's with you the next time you feel like a failure, the next time you're guilty, the next time you're lonely. He's not here. And that, that changes everything. But that's not all. Because Jesus left that tomb, we get to leave our tombs as well. Finishing out in verse 7. He says, but go. Ladies, go. Tell his disciples and Peter. Interesting to highlight Peter. Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. You see, these women were to go to deliver a message of hope to the hopeless disciples. They didn't stay in the tomb. We don't get to stay in the tomb because Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. See, now we have hope. So what, do, what does Jesus call us to do? We go back into hopeless situations. I don't say that lightly. That's hard. You know, going back home can feel pretty hopeless. 
when you've got the same family, you've got those same awkward, weird, maybe hostile, passive-aggressive dynamics. You know what you're getting when you go home. But you can go there. Do the dishes without complaining. Do laundry. Take your siblings somewhere. Tell them about what you're learning at Veritas. Ask them how they're doing. What's been going on the last few months? If you live on a dorm floor, that can be pretty hopeless. You got lots of peer pressure, feeling pressure to do things you'd rather not do. You got people who blatantly disregard the rules. If you're an RA, God bless you. You got to deal with people coming home drunk, breaking things, bleeding all over things. That's a true story. Come talk to me about it if you want. You can go there and be faithful because he's not here. You know, you can stick to your convictions. You can say no to temptations. You can spend some time with the people on your floor. You can invite them to Veritas. You can invite them to your small group next semester. RAs, you can do your duties without complaining. You can reach out. You know the lonely people. You know the dorks on the floor, the ones that stay in the room. You can draw them out. Fraternities and sororities. I lived there for two and a half years. They can be very hopeless places, but we can go. You can go there. You can make life better for the people around you. Get in an exec position. Change the stereotypes people have of Christians. If people think Christians are bigoted and uneducated and unloving, change the stereotype for somebody. Ask them how they're doing. Sober drive for them. Hold somebody's hair when they throw up, clean it up, and then look them in the eye and treat them like a person the next day. How often does that happen? I don't know. You can go there. You know, Racism on campus. Room this size, lots of people have different views. Some of you, it's everywhere. It's hopeless. Some of you, you have no idea what's going on. And you can't, you're trying to understand, but you can't understand. It's okay. Go. We can go there. We can talk about it. We can have conversations. Grab coffee. Grab lunch. Study with somebody different than you. Study with somebody from a different race. Ask questions. Ask what's it like going to Mizzou. What's that been like? See what happens. Classes, gosh, classes can feel hopeless. You're struggling to make grades. You've got the pressure of a scholarship, and if you don't get there, it's going to go bad. But you don't know the professor I have. The professor hates Christians. The professor doesn't listen. I'm trying to get into grad school. I'm not going to make it. It's too expensive. We can go there. We can go there. We can learn material. We can go to professor's office hours and try to understand. We can trust God with our future. It doesn't mean it's always going to work out, but he's not here. We can go deliver messages of hope to other people. Invite that roommate to a small group. Invite that teammate to listen to what Jesus has done in your life. Tell him he can do the same for you. If there's somebody you know who's depressed or anxious, don't go and try to fix them. Just go and listen. Jesus didn't stay there. And so we don't get to stay there. I'm going to invite the worship team back up, and I'm going to tell one last story. It's kind of a long one, so strap in. So on December 28, 2013, a two-year-old child named Emily, she died of an unidentified fever in Guinea. It's a country in West Africa. Soon after, her mom, her grandma, and her sister died. Fast forward two months later, March 22nd, 2014, Guinea confirms that this fever is the Ebola virus. It's a deadly fever that spreads uh, by direct contract through bodily fluids like blood, saliva. And at this point, it's killed 59 other people 
in the country, and a lot of people are starting to get worried that it spread to some other countries. And sure enough, six days later, there's two cases of Ebola in Sierra Leone, I'm sorry, in Liberia. Now, around this time, a guy named Dr. Kent Brantley, Kent Brantley starts to take notice. You see, Brantley and his wife were medical missionaries. They'd been in Liberia for about a year, and he was one of two doctors in a city of 400,000 people treating Ebola. That's four times the size of Colombia, two doctors treating Ebola. He's one of them. A few months later, July 27th, Liberia shuts down a lot of the border crossings. There's a doctor who initially helped an Ebola response in another country. He died. The World Health Organization has declared a state of emergency. Deaths are rising to about $1,000. $1,000. 1,000 people. Brantley, he's still there. He told one news source that he and his wife, yeah, they know. They know what they're doing. They're not stupid. They know what could happen, but they're staying. He said, even with the bad news, I felt strangely at peace. God blessed me with a peace that surpasses understanding. A month later, the death toll had risen to 4,000. Brantley's still there. There was one overnight shift where this woman was brought in by her daughter, really, really sick. But rather than go straight to the doctor, she went to the bathroom first. She came out with her daughter, found out she had diarrhea, and the woman was rushed directly to the Ebola unit. But the daughter was hysterical. She didn't trust the doctors. And so what Brantley had to do was counsel her to calm her down. And what he had to do to do that was take off his mask, take off his apron, take off his gloves, and touch her bare hand and calm her down and say, it's going to be okay. The doctors are concerned about your mom. We're going to do everything that we can. Unfortunately, that night, mom died. The next morning, the daughter was tested positive for Ebola. A week later, the doctor, Brantley, he started to get a fever. A couple days later, it was at 104.9. And the next day, the doctors confirmed, yeah, he had Ebola. He flew out the next day, went to Emory Hospital in Atlanta, got treated. Thank the Lord that he survived. Thank the Lord that Ebola stopped spreading. A Time Magazine uh, reporter interviewed him a few months later, asked him to reflect on his experience. This is what he said. When everyone else was running away in fear, we doctors stayed to help, to offer healing and to offer hope. When everybody else was running away, we stayed to help, we stayed to offer healing and hope. Jesus is not here that one thing that changes everything. Because Jesus left that tomb, he can come here with us. But because Jesus left that tomb, that means that we have to go too. Just like Brantley, just like he brought hope to that hopeless situation, we are called to bring hope to the hopeless. And so, over the break, over the next semester, over the next year, for the rest of your lives, go remembering that he's not here. And that changes everything. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, when we read the story in Mark, it's not a myth. It's real. It's true history. The tomb was rolled away, not so that Jesus could get out, but so that we could see in, so that we could see that he's not there. And that changes everything for us. No matter who we are, no matter what we're facing, Jesus, would you bring that truth to our mind? Would it give us hope? Would we bend but not break? Would you give us the courage and the strength to go, whatever that looks like, go into the relationship, go into the family dynamics, go to the class, just go. 
are not here, knowing that that changes everything. We pray this in the one who is alive, Jesus. Amen. Amen.